to the Food Magic Podcast. Join me on a journey to uncover the secret recipe to food and beverage industry success. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Food Magic Podcast. I am thrilled to introduce a a new and dear friend, Meryl Levitz who was the founder and former CEO and president of Visit Philadelphia. Meryl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor and pleasure to be be sitting among a woman that has done so much for our city. And I love to share this. Me and Meryl have something pretty awesome in common. We're both transplants to Philadelphia, but huge fans of Philadelphia. So what originally brought you to this fine city? You know, sometimes people from the outside can see the city more clearly than people who have been born here. (laughs) So I was very happy that when my husband was completing his doctorate and picking where he would take his first job as a clinical psychologist. (laughs) The city that was the most appealing to us was Philadelphia. And so University of Pennsylvania became my geographical determinant. Mm -hmm. We came in 1971. We thought we would stay for a couple years. (laughs) Here I am. It's almost, what, 2020? (laughs) The city does have a way of grabbing hold of you, doesn't it? It does, it does. It is the city, I'm going to say of all types of love, because there are all types of people here, but I too meant to move, and it just, it has a magnetism about it. Yes. But I want to say, I think a lot of that magnetism for me is what you've created in the city, so. Well, thank you, but, you know, it takes a village, and it was a lot of people, and I really credit Ed Brendel, who at the time was the mayor, Mm -hmm. and he led us all on the big team along with Rebecca Rimel, who was head of Pew Charitable Trust, still is, and then Governor Tom Ridge. And I called them my three R's. (laughs) And with them and with many other people who felt that Philadelphia deserved more than it was getting and that it was better than people thought, put together this effort to not only make it a better destination, for residents and visitors alike, Mm -hmm. but also let people know about it because nobody knew about it at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So could you talk about some of your beginning days with with Visit Philadelphia? I know you had quite a small budget to start out with and the beginnings were a bit tough and it's turned into, it's flourished into something much larger or is this how you imagined it? I, how did I imagine it? It was so long ago, but (laughs) I imagined that we were all on a mission, and the first thing that we had to do was do research and listen to what people in the city, and by the city, I mean the five-county area, Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and the countryside, and people outside the region, because no research had been done, and how can you deliver a message if you don't know who might be willing to hear it, who else is talking to them, Mm -hmm. what they already know, what the obstructions to your message is. So we did start with listening. We listened for about a year before we put the first campaign together, Make My Philadelphia Your Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. the place that loves you back. Because (laughs) we knew that the 
relationship between the destination and the person was the most important thing, just like you do with food. Mm -hmm. It's all about the relationship between the person and the experience, isn't it? Yes, mm -hmm. it definitely is. Um, I remember we chatted a couple weeks ago, and there were some very funny billboards that you guys put together in New York. <laughs> Would you mind going yeah. through some of the campaigns? We did. Well, you know, you have to know your audience. and. People in the past had always thought of New York as our competition, and mm -hmm. D.C. is our competition. But when we looked at the research and talked and listened to people, we thought, competition? Let's flip that around, because they could be our strongest feeder market. Mm, there are so that. many people. There are. Um, yeah, a quarter of the country's population is within a five-hour drive of Philadelphia. How could you not? look at that and so we also looked at what did New Yorkers have a problem with in New York? <laughs> a lot of things to be honest a lot but of we, won't, we won't get started on that. <laughs> that might be another podcast and you might be the person to talk. Um, but we found that number one they really did not know that Philadelphia had a great food and drink scene. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how close Philadelphia was, <laughs> and they didn't know how differently things were priced mm -hmm. in Philadelphia than in New York. So one billboard, well, every June we took over the entire Penn Station, because mm. millions of people go through that station in June, not only New Yorkers, but people from all over the place. So how could you pass that up? So we took over every advertising space, including the stairs. <laughs> and on the billboards, we put messages targeted for New Yorkers, such as um, in letters, big, nice, uh, love letters. Um, dear $18 cocktail, down here we call you two cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> now that was a few years ago. Some of our restaurants and bars are getting pretty close to they an $18 cocktail. <laughs> um, we've got to watch that. Another one, we had a picture of a wine bottle and we said, um, an $18 drink should have a cork in it. <laughs> and uh, they love that. And another one said, a New York minute goes farther on a Philly dollar. <laughs> and people would stop and look at that. And, you know, we had all kinds of people <laughs> taking photos and selfies, and they would turn up on Instagram and Facebook. That's and awesome. What a wonderful way to spread the news. So mm -hmm. we like those ads because they were saying two things. Philadelphia does have great places mm -hmm. to gather and it won't cost you as much because part of your drink isn't going to pay a New York rent. Yep. Let's face it, right? That is the mm -hmm. difference. Yes. Um, I moved here from North Jersey and I remember getting in a cab for the first time and I think I went, I went pretty far across the city and I was like, that's only five fifty. It was so <laughs> shocking. I was so used to New York City prices, and I mean, now that we have Uber and Lyft, it's an even easier city to get around in. But it's amazing. I I like to think of Philly as city meets jungle. We have so many green spaces, <laughs> a lot of parks, and Fairmount Park is just yeah amazing. Penn's original plan, you know, the value of vision, mm -hmm. um, creating Penn's green country town. People are very surprised at how many parks and squares and pocket gardens. They're surprised at 
Kelly Drive, well, all the drives, mm -hmm. and just the emphasis on horticulture, mm -hmm. the flower show, yes. um, people's window boxes. Uh, there are so many signs that people care about keeping Philadelphia a green country town while at the same time providing the amenities that people need for their workaday life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are many city amenities in that sense. Yes. And yes. it's interesting, the skyline has changed a lot over the past few years. Oh my gosh. When my husband, Len, and I drove out here in 1971, of course that predated GPS. <laughs> and so we thought, well, how are we going to find it? And I said to Len, well, just look for all the tall buildings, and that's where we should be. And there weren't any tall buildings except for PSFS and mm -hmm. some guy on the top of some building who yep. we found out later was William Penn. We'd assumed, well, maybe that's Ben Franklin. But, um, <laughs> common misconception. Common misconception, <laughs> but it is William Penn. And uh, we lit it for the millennium in 2000. But now the city has a skyline, and it's a beautiful one. And one thing that visitors want out of the city mm -hmm. is a skyline. Yep. And not only that, but it also gave the signal that we're in business. Can you picture how we would be if we couldn't have broken the height limit mm -hmm. on William Penn because, on City Hall, I mean, because how could Comcast, for example, or FMC or Aramark found enough land mm -hmm. to establish the business base that we need here if they couldn't go vertical? Right. So it's not only an aesthetic, but it enabled us to get into the current time. Definitely, and it provided so many jobs. Yes. And people that are interested in food and mm -hmm. beverage and all of the fun things that we yes. really love behind the scenes. That's right. <laughs> You're exactly right. Um, so Meryl, in all of your years here, can you make some recommendations to our listeners on places to go, maybe for a cocktail or a good bite of food? I. You know, when people ask me what my uh, favorite place to eat is, mm -hmm. I always say, at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I had to be very careful not to make favorites. But I have to say, and nobody's ever objected to my saying this, that Reading Terminal Market is not only Philadelphia under one roof, but mm -hmm. in many ways it's Pennsylvania under one roof and it is a market really like no other and anytime I'm in another city I go to the markets and mm -hmm. I love Pike Place Market I mean that's that's wonderful but Reading Terminal Market has a particular mix of people it's one of those places in Philly where you can go whether you're rich, poor, old, young, whatever you are, mm -hmm. you are welcome there and you can have a variety of experiences there and you can bring food home or you can cook it yourself or you can get it there or you can get it to go. So that's one of the things I like. The, the other things that's amazing to me, given my own food preferences, is the number of places that now afford you the possibility of getting small plates. Yes, um, happy hour. Yes, <laughs> it's happy hour, and then it's after that, too. You know, places like the Hungry Pigeon or Soraya, for example, mm -hmm. um, you can put together for yourself 
um, you know, if you're a real control freak like I am, I always get the control freak salad, you know, wherever you can. But you can put together different small plates for sharing, and that way you can taste more food. And I think Philadelphia has established itself as a place that understands how people want to eat. So I think the combination of that with some of the tried and true legacy restaurants in South Philly and in where we are right now, mm -hmm. University City, Center City, match up very well with the development of great places to go, restaurants and bars in Fishtown and in Kensington and yeah. in Maniunk, although you have some long timers there too, or in any of the neighborhoods where very frequently it is a coffee shop or a restaurant that makes people say, I'm going to go to that neighborhood, mm -hmm. you know, and a culture develops around that. Uh, and food and, and restaurants, you know, who won't turn around on the street for a great taco? Definitely. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I think of food as the centerpiece of all human connection. You know, when you're at a networking event or you're meeting someone new, I think that food breaks the ice. It's it does. And breaking bread with over. people. Yes. I mean, you. it changes how you feel about that person and, yes. and how you approach them. It's a <laughs> wonderful thing. And we get to eat three, four times a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're pretty lucky. We are. And I think... Um, we eat to experience now, which is which is pretty new, actually. A study a few years ago came out, and it said that millennials were the first generation to desire trying a new restaurant over buying a new pair of shoes. And uh, that's mm -hmm. one thing I find. I know that there is yeah. a lot said about millennials. I myself am a millennial, but that's one of the facts that I really love because it's all about experience, right? You don't it get is. to take things with you later on in life, but the <laughs> memories that you have are that's true. amazing. No, I, I do think that's really true, and I hope that they continue to have the wherewithal uh, to do that, mm -hmm. and I think the people moving back into the city, now that their kids are grown and they don't need big homes out in the burbs, burbs <laughs> I think that balances it on the other end. So. Very frequently, you have people who will eat earlier, people who will eat later, mm -hmm. people who will eat all during the week, not just on Fridays, Saturday, and Sunday. That's mm -hmm. a good place, by the way. <laughs> um, and I think the more people that appreciate that we're a port city, we are an international city in that we have people from all over the world who brought their best recipes here. Mm -hmm. We have close-in farms. We have a food distribution center. Millennials could eat out seven days a week and three eat times their way a day. around the world. <laughs> three, yeah, three times a day, and and so could other, so can other people too. And I think that's become a phenomenon not only in Philadelphia but in the country. But mm -hmm. Philadelphia is well suited, and the number of articles that have come out that say, you might be used to eating in New York, but if you haven't eaten in Philadelphia, you've missed where it really is happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, um, a few years back, I 
think it was Travel and Leisure magazine named us the next best food city to watch. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, the James Beard chefs are coming Mm -hmm. from our city and the -hmm. food festivals that are happening here. Actually, I'd love to talk about festivals because I know Mm -hmm. that that was a huge part of what you did with Visit Philadelphia, right? On the waterfront. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, when I was at, um, well, when I had co-founded Center City Proprietors back in 1978, with um, a group of people called the Commissary Six, and uh, because Steve Poses at the time had a restaurant called the Commissary, mm-hmm. and it was a group of us who felt that Center City restaurants and shops that were individually owned really um, needed more profile because there were malls going up all around them, and how were there? supposed to compete with what Mm -hmm. was happening in Cherry Hill and King of Prussia, although those are are really nice um, (laughs) to have. But even back then, we felt that um, there needed to be attention. So we marketed that food scene under the um, motto, there's no shopping center like shopping center city, to get people to eat and shop. And We did several events that were designed to showcase Philadelphia's restaurant renaissance that was happening Mm -hmm. at the time with people like George Perrier, for example. So that was maybe one of the renaissances. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then when I was at the Convention and Visitors Bureau and opened up Penn's Landing, the Great Plaza at Penn's Landing, what we did was a whole series of food and music festivals where we were able to showcase the coming scene. Uh, we had the Jambalaya Jam, Rockarama, River Blues. We d- did a little bit later Welcome America. We did Great Gospel Picnic Weekend. And at that, people got to come together mm-hmm. in a lovely site and eat and drink and listen their way through an experience with other like-minded people. And I'm told that (laughs) getting people to the waterfront for the first time spawned a lot of the restaurants that opened up first as seasonal restaurants and then full year, permanent and also into Old City and Society Hill. I'm sure that was one of the reasons. Um, There were other reasons as well, but sometimes coming to a festival and trying something that you might not ordinarily go out of your way to do. We heard that people then showed up at the restaurant and said, I had the jambalaya over here at your (laughs) festival, and so now here I am on South Street, and I want some more. So, you know, that kind of thing helps. Mm-hmm. It definitely does. Um, and Meryl, I know that at your time at Visit Philadelphia, you could you talk a little bit about how you structured the team? I know that you led a lot of people through the ranks. <laughs> yeah, well, we, through the research that I mentioned before, we found a few things that were significant and that we had to address. And one was that people had very old tapes playing in their head mm. about Uh, Philadelphia and they had old pictures that went along with these kind of tapes and so we reshot 
Philadelphia. We hired professional photographers and mm -hmm. videographers, and then years later when HD came out, we reshot it yet again, and we did very visual campaigns because people were thinking of us as a post-industrial Rust Belt city. Mm -hmm. And as you said yourself, we were a green city, and we were an increasingly youthful city and a city where people were out and on the street. Um, people had this impression that nobody was out there after five o'clock, everything closed, <laughs> you know. So that was one thing. The other thing we realized is that we needed some professionally worded squibs about our different attractions because a lot of the attractions in Philly are nonprofit. You know, mm -hmm. the art museum, even all of these are. And so a lot of people didn't have money for their own marketing, and so we got a wonderful grant from William Penn to supply 400 organizations with professionally written copy wow. and professional photography. That's we amazing. had an, uh, well, I, I would say, an uh, surprising to many people, large public relations department because for travel, people really rely on word of mouth and what their friends or relatives said Definitely. or what they heard or, you know, back in the day they would tear an article out of the paper, you know, now they just forward it um, sure. or save or it. text it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but back in the day that was really important so the advertising was important to legitimize it but the public relations was important for reliability and then we were one of the first travel websites in the whole country because we thought well what is this internet thing is it a fad <laughs> or a trend and we said no nah, we think it's a trend and so we were one of the first destinations to do that we were one of the first destinations to um, market to the LGBT community. We were, along with Seattle, the most successful recovery marketing campaigns after 9-11 when people just stopped traveling. And our feeling was because people think of Philadelphia as an old city, mm -hmm. we always had to be on the cutting edge and, you know, go over the hill first um, <laughs> to counter that impression and show that Philadelphia was a place not only where great ideas used to happen, like mm -hmm. founding the country, which sure. wasn't bad, <laughs> but where great ideas were happening again. Yes. So that's that. This actually relates a lot to um, an experience that I had a few years back. Steve Case, the founder of AOL, mm -hmm. was doing a campaign throughout the country, and he came to speak to, I don't remember if it was on Drexel's campus or a co-working space, but I, I went to go hear him speak, and he said, Philadelphia is where our country was born. Mm -hmm. It's the birth of entrepreneurship, right? I mean, Ooh, that's a good one. The U.S. is a startup yes. in a sense, right? Yes, We're just it a is. couple hundred years old. Right. And it's amazing that this is the birthplace. And now I think that there's almost a resurgence of entrepreneurship here, whether it be in tech, in mm -hmm. food, and there's so many different industries. And um, as an entrepreneur here, I feel so invigorated. Sometimes I, I love walking in an old city and remembering it all started here. And I mm -hmm. also got my start here, and it's, it just feels very 
special. There is something about the energy here. There is a level of support that people provide and encouragement. There's mm -hmm. just a very, very special flavor to the city, and yes. I accidentally fell in love with it, and that's why <laughs> I haven't moved. Um, and I guess you're you're kind of the, of the same yeah. thought process. There's nothing wrong with accidental love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there is a connectedness that happens, and mm -hmm. I think um, people like you and other entrepreneurs with really good ideas have probably a better chance in many ways of getting their dream going here definitely uh, than in some other places that are too big or too wide or too expensive. not keyed into it too expensive yeah um, the spaces are different here just thinking of some restaurants for example you can open a smaller place and work with the numbers that you have because of the structure and depth of some of our um, some of our places where if in New York you had to invest in a, a great big thing and try mm -hmm. to, you can't do that. You can't do that. Yeah, you don't and have to put yeah. as much on the line to try it out that, here. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, mm -hmm. it's still risky, but oh, a, a gosh, little yes. less a little less risky yeah. here than other places. Yeah, <laughs> I would hope so. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I know a big part of what you did is you fundraised, and yes. that's not something that's easy to do. And um, I don't mean to make it about women versus men, but I've done a lot of research on this and. Women have more trouble asking for money. We're not as comfortable with that. So could you talk a bit well, to that? Well, speak for yourself. I had I no know. trouble. So <laughs> I love that. You know what? This is a question I'm asking then because I've yeah. been uncomfortable with that part. So can you chat a bit, not just to women, but to all people? How did you go about fundraising? Can you talk about your experience and some tips that you have? Because I think your version of fundraising is probably transferable to a lot of our listeners. Um. I hope so. I mean, first is, of course, believing in your product. Definitely. And I know that, that you do, and you have a great product. And the second is having your research down pat. Mm -hmm. And a big challenge for us was the hospitality industry isn't really seen as an industry mm. everywhere. And so what we needed to, in fact, Sometimes it's called the invisible industry because people said, "Well, wh where's your building? I don't, I don't see a building. I, I don't see 1,500 parking spaces outside." Mm -hmm. And we'd say, well, "Look, hospitality has, you know, 37,000 people employed in it. It generates seven billion dollars annually. Um, it's, you know, we had a, all of all of that together, mm -hmm. but." The facts are important, but they're just one thing. I think you have to have enthusiasm, <laughs> um, a sense that this is a happening thing already. Sometimes people don't want to be the first person, mm -hmm. you know, to put money up. And so you have to be able to say, it's already happening. And um, here's what your funding can, can help us do. We had events where we invited prospective funders mm -hmm. so they could see when disasters happened, whether it was the Katrina or 9-11 or the Gulf Oil spill. We were quick to point out that, hey, 
nobody's working. Tourism is important mm -hmm. and use, uh, in the best sense of the word use, such occurrences to show people that this invisible industry becomes visible when there is a big kind of catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And I think um, pulling people in um, by also working with their allies and other people they believe in mm -hmm. is really important as well. And let's face it, they have to like you. They yes. have to trust you. Because the people, they're investing the in the person. It's their blood, sweat, tears, money. <laughs> and even if it's not theirs personally, if sure. it's their organization, they're on the line for what happens with it. Yes. And I think having a track record of following up and delivering, if you say you're going to give them quarterly reports, you give them quarterly reports. reports. Yes. I mean, you do what you say you're going to do, and, and you keep in touch with them. I think um, some things are not quantifiable. You know, when they would say to me, well, how do you know that this many people came because of your ads? Well, you don't, but here's a pattern of the past few years with mm -hmm. this season, and this is how many people came when we weren't here, and this is how many people are coming now. There has to be a you know, some carryover, and sure. we're probably not the only thing, but we're probably a part, part of, of that thing. Yeah. So throughout your time, how much money did you raise for Visit Philadelphia? Um, probably $112 million. Um, wow. Aside from the hotel tax, which we didn't get until, and there are a few hotel taxes, but we didn't get any of that until after our first year of advertising. Mm -hmm. And then we went for it because it was very important to us to have a dedicated revenue source because you have to build from year to year on the relationship that you're establishing with prospective tourists and without a dedicated revenue source you don't know how much money you're going to have and you don't want to leave people holding the bag um, so that would really handicap your partnerships and so it it was a fight even though everybody wanted it mm -hmm. and respected that this would be a good thing. Nobody likes that three-letter word, tax. Nope. <laughs> and, um, and since then, we also had it raised a couple more times, not only for us, but we worked with the Convention and Visitors Bureau and the Convention Center, the other two recipients of the tax, to make sure that what happened was better for everyone and mm -hmm. raise the, the boat, is that the line, um, <laughs> for everyone. And I'm sure that in the food business and you're part of the hospitality industry, that's important too um, because people want to know that they're part of a good movement. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, from, I think from my standpoint one of the most exciting things is actually being able to hire people. Mm. You get to put food on their table, a roof yes. over their families' heads, and I'm just starting to get into that a bit more. We've, we've hit a bit of a growth spurt moment so we've been hiring people, but it just it feels amazing. You think about how many jobs are brought to the city by startups or the Comcast or the hospitality industry. It's just it's amazing. It's the best thing. <laughs> to be able to say to somebody, you're hired. <laughs> um, and, and to see what that does to somebody. Um, yeah. And that's what we talk about 
when we're raising money as well is this is creating an opportunity for someone to have a job and to come back to his family or her family and say, I got the job. Mm -hmm. And um, to become part of this whole scene. Everybody wants to be on a team. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask the question we ask at every interview. What was your food magic or hospitality magic moment in your life? It could <laughs> be something from childhood or really any time of life, something that stood out and made you realize that this is the industry you want to work in. Um, a personal thing from way back is my Aunt Wilma, um, who was Hungarian, and she was a professional baker. Mm. And she was the nucleus of family, you know, family in the larger sense, mm -hmm. um, meals, and the reverence that pe everybody called her Aunt Wilma, even people for whom she wasn't an aunt, <laughs> um, because she just brought people together around her table, and mm -hmm. she did it pretty regularly. She was a good cook as, as well as a baker, and um, some of my fondest memories from childhood is just looking around the table and seeing everybody so happy eating all this great Hungarian food. Mm -hmm. um, in Philadelphia, in later life, I have to go back to the Reading Terminal Market because when I first saw it, and I used to teach a course there called <laughs> Fear of Fish, um, for <laughs> people who knew they should eat more fish but didn't know how, and so I worked with the vendors there, and uh, we did this whole thing. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, but um, this probably predates your being here, but there was a great fear among people that when the convention center was built, that would destroy the market. Mm -hmm. And instead, it reinvigorated it, yeah. it cleaned it, it modernized it, but without losing many of the traditional vendors and adding more who would um, contribute to the food scene and to people's experience. And so to me, when I think table, um, I, I still think Reading Terminal Market, as <laughs> I said before, and to me it crystallizes the possibilities that you can find wherever you are. Um, in the city or the greater Philadelphia region. I, I think there's nothing like it, and I really credit those who saved the market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fun fact about the market, mm -hmm. it's actually on the Monopoly board as one of the four terminals, which yes. is yeah. so Yeah, Reading Railroad, right? Reading Railroad, yep. Yeah. So fun, very fun fact. I used to, I I used to spend hours playing Monopoly against the computer when I was a kid, and, and I used to love win? the railroad. I did a lot of the time. <laughs> <Good for you. laughs> Sometimes no, but that's part of the fun, right? <laughs> it is part of the fun, and now you know they have the charge card Monopoly. You don't even have to use bank money. And yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and there are different forms of it. it the fascination with Monopolies <laughs> has not stopped. It has not. There's <laughs> no. also a really fun version called Monopoly Deal, and mm -hmm. they turned it into a card game so you can play a lot faster. You can get more rounds in. Faster is better. Yes, it's, a, it's quite a long game. Yeah, it's Lots quite of a little long pieces. Game. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Meryl, is there any key takeaway you would like for our listeners to get out of this talk? Maybe an inspiring quote, a book recommendation, or just a little piece of advice from you? for entrepreneurs or um, 
for everyone, I come back to Winston Churchill. <laughs> I don't know whether he was a foodie or not, but um, there were two things that he said, well, there were many, but relevant to what you're talking about, never, 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 never quit. Mm -hmm. And um, tying in with that is when you're going through hell, keep going. Mm. Because it's just part of it. And if you believe in your idea and you have the signs, I mean, be realistic too, that this thing is going somewhere, Sure. Um, stick with it. If it weren't easy, you wouldn't be doing it, right? Um, that's very true, yeah. and it feels so different when you have to hustle hard and the going gets tough, and then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, it's like the compound effect of the energy that you put into something finally sprouts. Yeah. It's amazing. And sometimes, I don't know if this happened with you or not, sometimes you start along one path and have a certain idea about what you're doing, but along the way, you see a different possibility and you're <laughs> curious and maybe flexible enough to make some changes and sure. I think that's one of the key talents and skills of entrepreneurs is that they're curious and they're creative and they're willing to learn and, and look and change with the times. I definitely agree with that. <laughs> Meryl, thank you so much for your time oh, and energy. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to spend time with you today. And with you. <laughs> I love it. Thanks. Oop, looks like we're all out of time for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to discover the secret recipe to food and beverage industry success. Make sure to tune into next week's episode. And in the meantime, spread the love. Check us out on Instagram or our website, Food Magic Podcast. Mwah!